Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 16. As you're all aware, the in-service is coming up next week, so we're going to change things up a bit for this episode. Right, instead of covering new material this week, we're going to release three short episodes day by day, focusing on what we felt were the highest yield points of everything we've covered. So this won't be your typical multiple-choice question-answer style episode. It's going to be more like an elongated rapid review, encompassing material from all of our prior episodes. We'll be going through the material in a topic-based fashion, and we'll also incorporate a short pause after each question so you can quiz yourself as you go along. So this is certainly not a comprehensive overview of all of emergency medicine prior to the in-service. If you have specific questions about what we're covering, head back to the original episode for a full review or send us an email at roshcast at roshreview.com and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. I'll get us started. What are the two most common causes of small bowel obstructions and large bowel obstructions? Small bowel obstructions are caused most commonly by post-operative adhesions and malignancy. In comparison, large bowel obstructions are caused most commonly by malignancy followed by volvulus. What are the five components of Reynolds Pentad for acute cholangitis? Reynolds Pentad consists of fever, right upper quadrant pain, jaundice, altered mental status, and hypotension. The initial treatment of GERD should always begin with lifestyle and behavioral modifications. Can you list some of the most important modifications? The most important modifications include weight loss, head of bed elevation, and avoiding eating just prior to going to sleep. Great. And if the lifestyle modifications aren't providing adequate relief from GERD, what category of drugs should be empirically tried? PPIs are the empiric treatment of choice for GERD. And one last question on GERD here. Besides discomfort, what is the most feared complication of untreated GERD? Untreated GERD can lead to Barrett esophagus, which increases the risk for esophageal neoplasm. Nice job. And we covered a lot more cardiovascular topics, so why don't you lead us through the first half of the review and I'll take the second half. Sounds good. What's the mechanism of action for nitrates? Nitrates reduce both the preload and the afterload by dilating vascular smooth muscles. Remember to avoid them in inferior MIs and those on phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Great. And what's the most common finding in acute aortic dissections? I got this one wrong the first time, and I'll never forget it now. The most common finding in an acute aortic dissection is actually hypertension. Perfect. Let's talk about VTAC. Differentiate between fusion beats and capture beats. Capture beats are normal, narrow, supraventricular beats within a run of wide, complex beats. Fusion beats, on the other hand, occur when impulses from two different locations activate the ventricle. One impulse is typically ventricular and the other is typically supraventricular, resulting in a QRS complex with a hybrid morphology of a sinus beat and an intraventricular beat. How does the management of AV nodal reentrant tachycardia differ in hemodynamically stable versus unstable patients? For hemodynamically stable patients, you can use either beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, or even digoxin. In unstable or refractory cases, cardioversion should be your first intervention. Don't forget that beta blockers should be avoided in asthmatics. Let's switch to endocarditis. Can you remind us of the mnemonic for the findings associated with bacterial endocarditis? The mnemonic here is from Jane. You have fever, Rothspots, Osler nodes, murmur, Janeway lesions, anemia, nail bed hemorrhages, and emboli. Strong work. Which valve and organism are most frequently implicated in IV drug abusers? That would be the tricuspid valve and staph aureus endocarditis. And for native valve endocarditis, which valve is most commonly involved? In native valve endocarditis, the mitral valve is most commonly affected, followed by the aortic valve. 
Great. And lastly, if you find strep bovis endocarditis, what type of malignancy are you concerned about? That's definitely colon cancer. Remember the saying, cancer in the colon, bovis in the blood. Let's switch it up and I'll take it from here. This is a bit of a loaded question here, but in cardiac arrest, can you list some of the evidence-based interventions that improve outcomes? In cardiac arrest, AED use, early bystander CPR, amiodarin for shock-resistant VTAC or VFib, therapeutic hypothermia, and cardiac catheterization for ventricular dysrhythmias, even in EKGs that don't meet STEMI criteria, have all been shown to improve outcomes. Nice work. It's important to note that neither the drugs nor advanced airway management make that list. Sticking with the theme of hemodynamics, how do you calculate the mean arterial pressure? Mean arterial pressure can be calculated by multiplying the cardiac output by the systemic vascular resistance and adding that to the central venous pressure. We usually estimate this by two-thirds of the diastolic plus one-third of the systolic. In a patient with an acute onset heart block due to coronary ischemia, which artery is likely occluded? You should suspect a right coronary artery occlusion as this artery supplies the AV node in the majority of patients. What are the six P's of acute arterial occlusion and which two typically require emergent surgical intervention as they herald more advanced disease? The six P's of acute arterial occlusion are paresthesias, paralysis, pallor, pulselessness, poikilothermia, and pain out of proportion to exam. Paralysis and paresthesias require emergent surgical intervention. Great. And how are acute arterial occlusions managed? Well, it's important to differentiate the cause as this will dictate the treatment course. Acute arterial embolism should be managed by embolectomy, whereas in situ thromboses may respond to anticoagulation. And lastly, what's the most common source for an arterial embolus? Left ventricular thrombi formation after an MI is the most common source of an arterial embolus. The next topic is skin conditions. Where are escherotomies performed in circumferential upper and lower extremity burns? Escherotomies are performed along the medial and lateral aspects of both the upper and lower extremities. All right, let's say you're treating a burned patient. What formula do you use to calculate fluid requirements? Well, you're referring to the Parkland formula. That's calculated by multiplying 4 times the percentage of total body surface area that's burned by their weight in kilograms. You give the first half of the fluid over the first 8 hours and the second half of the fluid over the next 16 hours. Is staph scalded skin syndrome caused by an endotoxin or an exotoxin? And would you expect Nikolsky's sign to be positive or negative? Staph scalded skin syndrome is caused by an exotoxin. These patients will have a positive Nikolsky sign. Thankfully, rupturing the bulleye will not spread the toxin as it spread hematogenously. Perfect. And define Trousseau syndrome. Trousseau syndrome is a migratory thrombophobitis associated with pancreatic cancer. Describe the characteristic lesion of erythema nodosum, and what's the most common cause and how is it treated? Erythema nodosum is an inflammatory condition characterized by tender red-violet nodules under the skin. The most common cause is infection, but drugs can also cause erythema nodosum, with oral contraceptives being the most common culprit. The treatment is NSAIDs for mild to moderate cases, and potassium iodine can be used for severe cases. Nice work, and I have two endocrine questions for you. Which class of oral antihyperglycemic medications can lead to recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia? Sulfonylureas can cause recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia. And what blood tests can be used to diagnose factitious hypoglycemia? There's two important blood tests. You look at the C-peptide and insulin levels. The C-peptide would be low and the insulin would be high. That's due to the exogenous administration of insulin. 
I'm going to lead us through the environmental questions, which are up next. What are the local and systemic symptoms associated with a scorpion sting? Local symptoms include local redness and edema with a heightened sensitivity to touch in that area. You can also have numbness and weakness to the affected area. Systemic symptoms include fasciculations, disconjugate gaze, temperature reversal, and pancreatitis. All right, now we're moving on to spider bites. Where are black widow and brown recluse spiders typically found in the United States? Black widow spiders are found throughout the entire United States. Don't forget that they can be identified by the hourglass shape on their abdomen. In comparison, brown recluse spiders are found in the Midwest. Perfect. Now compare the local and systemic symptoms of black widow and brown recluse spiders. Black widow spider bites cause a local papule with a halo. Severe systemic symptoms include a peritonitic abdomen, muscle fasciculations, and diaphoresis. Brown recluse spider bites cause a papule that later blisters and may necrose. Systemic symptoms there include renal failure, pulmonary edema, and shock. Awesome. Along similar lines, what are the local and systemic symptoms for a pit viper snake bite? Pit viper snake bites cause local swelling and oozing from the wound. Severe envenomations can lead to a DIC-like coagulopathy and hemorrhagic bullet. All right, and for the last environmental question of the day, what is the ideal temperature for a water immersion bath when treating frostbite? Frostbite should be treated with immersion in a warm water bath at 37 to 39 degrees Celsius. Water at higher temperatures will warm no faster and can cause increased pain and potentially damaged tissue. All right, I know that was a quick episode, but that wraps up the first third of the review. Remember to head back over to the original episodes or email us at roshcast at roshreview.com if you have any questions about what we just covered. We'll have the next third ready for you tomorrow, so stay tuned. Staff Scaldedson. Staph scalded skin syndrome is caused by an exotoxin. These patients will have a positive Nikolsky sign. Thankfully, rupturing the bulli will not spread the toxin as it spread hematogenously. Thankfully, rupturing the bulli will not spread the toxin as it spread. Thankfully, rupturing the bulli will not spread the toxin as it spread hematogenously. Thankfully, rupturing the bulli will not spread the toxin as it spread hematologically. Thankfully, rupturing the bulli will not spread the toxin as it spread hematologically. Dude. Hematogenously. Dude. Staph scalded skin syndrome. <laughs>